The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. First of all, all I have to say is welcome to everybody. Um, yeah, it's so lo- lovely to see so many faces uh, today. Um, in a way, it's part of a continuing conversation and that we've been having over the last few days of actually going back to the original text, as Tony said, and trying to discern what's going on in the original text, irrespective of what the traditions, and I do say that in the plural, what the traditions have said to us, over the centuries, over this vast history of Buddhism and its growth over two and a half thousand years. Because by going back to the early text, we often find something very different from what's going on in the traditions. And this is what's quite startling, and this is what's quite exciting, actually, about this work, is when we begin to see what the Buddha is actually saying, rather than what the tradition is saying. So, on that theme, I'm going to be looking, as, as you all well know, at Metta today. Well, Metta is going to include the other Brahma-Viharas. I'm going to probably speak a little slightly less about these, uh, these Brahma-Viharas, but um, we're going to have to look at Metta in quite a little bit of detail. Having said that, I don't like this to be a monologue. Um, I don't like to sit up here just monologuing at you. So uh, I do encourage participation. I do encourage people to come up with questions, hopefully questions which are related to what I'm talking about, if you can. (laughs) Because it it can go off in all sorts of tangents, and I I readily get caught up in the tangents as well. So I just like to say that. Okay, let's, uh, let's look at the role of meta. Well... One of the claims that I, and not just myself, and others are making is that when we begin to look at the original texts, and particularly some of the older strata of the Pali Canon, then we get a very different picture of the role of metta, karuna, upeka, or sort of mudita and upeka, okay? Usually translated loving-kindness. I'm going to tell you something about that in a second. Um, I think this is a rather sloppy translation. (laughs) Compassion, usually translated as mudita, as sympathetic or empathetic joy, really what it means is gentle joy. And the last one, equanimity, which is a perfectly valid translation of these. And we're usually talking about these as being subsidiary practices to the main practice that most people know about. The tradition, and particularly the Theravada tradition, has had an obsession with wisdom (laughs) over its history. And as has many of the developments within Mahayana traditions, they've got what I call wisdom-obsessed, wisdom-focused. Everything appears to be about wisdom. And compassion is mentioned, as is metta, but they seem to be subsidiary events, so much so when you come to this vast tome, which I'm sure some of you might have come across, written in the 5th century um, by this figure called Buddhaghosa, who's really the founder of the Theravada movement as we know it today in Burma, Sri Lanka, Thailand, Cambodia and Laos. When we come to that, he finds it very, very difficult to place these practices, which we know as the Brahma Viharas, which includes, obviously, is the fourth, uh, you know, their major practice of metta, he finds them very difficult to place within his framework, so he sticks them, almost ad hoc, into concentration practices. Now, one of the claims I'm going to hopefully substantiate as I go through with you is I don't think they are concentration practices. They can be concentration practices, 
but primarily I think they are insight practices. I haven't got a copy of it with me, which is very remiss of me, but um, there's two lines within the Metta Karanya Sutta, which is this sutta which is found in the oldest strata of the Pali Canon, as far as we know, which is the Sutta Nipata. It's a very, very old text. The Palian is very different. The picture that you get of you know, what the Buddha envisaged as his monastic community and the practices are completely different from what we get in, in much later big versions like the Majjhima and the Diganakaya, the long discourses and the middle-length discourses. It presents a very, very different picture of what Buddhism was about. In this particular text, the Metakaranya Sutta, what we find is the Buddha saying this thing. He says these two lines, amongst a lot of other things that he says. He says, there is no better mindfulness in this world. There is no other better way to live in this world. One who practices this will never come to be reborn again. It's pretty explicit. Now, however you interpret rebirth, I don't really, really want to get into that one at this stage, but he is making it very explicit that the path of metta is the path to awakening. I mean, that is a revolution, if you think about it. The path of kindness, the path of friendliness, the path of, even if you want to stick with the old translation of loving kindness, can be in itself a path to awakening. That's a revolution. Certainly in Buddhist terms it's a revolution because primarily, as I've said, the traditions have parroted out over the centuries the idea that one must have panya in order to gain basic awakening. So, that's the premise I'm starting from, that the Buddha is actually claiming we have a path to awakening which is different from the path to awakening that most of us assume to be the path of awakening that is there within the bulk of the texts. Awakening, let me just say something about that. This is the, my alternative word and many others, I'm not just the only one who's saying it these days, my alternative word for what is usually translated as enlightenment. Um, so those who've been with me for the last couple of days will know I have a particular prejudice against the word enlightenment. I think it only occurred at the end of the 18th century uh, and into the early 19th century. And it was a whole movement within Western philosophy and Western thought. This is not what the Buddha is talking about. He's talking about waking up. He really is talking about waking up. So actually, when we start talking about awakening, we are offered a challenge. We are actually offered a challenge by the Buddha. We're offered a challenge to wake up to the way things are. Have you ever wondered why you kind of metaphorically wake up with bruises all the time, having bumped into the same things you've been bumping into all your life? Well, it's because you're sleepwalking. Yeah. This is it. You're sleepwalking. It's sonambulism. You know, we're bumping to things, and you keep bumping into the same lamppost, and you wonder why. Now, the Buddha is saying, wake up. Wake up to the way things really are. Waking up to the three facets of existence. Waking up to impermanence. Waking up to dukkha. Waking up to anatta. Waking up to the lack of any essence or any fixed notion of the self. This is what we're waking up to. 
And meta itself can do this. This is what is important. Now, before I really get started, I want to present you with an image. It's actually an image that was given by a 14th century Tibetan thinker. And I don't usually, these days, quote much from Tibetan thought, but this particular one by, I'll only phoneticize it. Longchen Rabjampa. He was a great 14th century meditator. He's one of the founders of the Nyingma school of Tibetan Buddhism. Longchen Rabjampa presents a beautiful image in one of his um, primary texts called the Mangalso Kosum, the Trilogy of Finding Comfort and Ease. I love the title of his book. <laughs> uh, within this, there is a chapter on the Brahma Viharas. In the Brahma Viharas, he starts off with this. He says, out of the soil of metta, out of the soil of friendliness, grows the beautiful bloom of compassion, to be watered by tears of joy under the cool shade of the tree of equanimity. (laughs) This actually shows you something about the relationship of these four practices. That they're not, um, as I've been saying throughout, actually, the time I've been here, that none of the things that the Buddha talks about are linear. You know, we cultivate the soil of compassion. We cultivate the soil of metta. Out of this will grow this beautiful bloom, this wonderful bloom of compassion. However, if we don't cultivate that soil, if we don't actually do it for ourselves and do it for others, this bloom will never come into existence. So we spend a lot of time actually cultivating this soil, watering it, manuring it, weeding it, making sure that it's fit for something to grow in. And this soil is not a soil of loving kindness. And I really mean it quite strongly. I often find this word quite um, weak, loving kindness. The actual word metta means friendliness. Yeah. It's actually allied to another Pali word, which is some of you might know, it has, which is this, mitta, or mitra in Sanskrit. Mitta is a friend. Some of you might know the phrase kalyana mitta, yeah, a spiritual friend or a good friend, actually. So mitta is the root of the word metta. And so we're talking actually with metta, not of loving kindness, but of boundless and expansive friendliness towards all things. This is the virtue that the Buddha is really giving. He is not asking us to love everybody, which I think is a very wise thing. (laughs) It's almost an impossible task as well. Uh, We can't love everybody, but we can befriend everybody. And that friendliness is a respectful relationship with others. And included in that is not just others, but yourself, to befriend yourself. That really is a big task for most Western people, to befriend ourselves, to become good friends to ourselves, is often quite difficult because we give ourselves such a hard time. 
I was saying to the group the other day that Eastern teachers, when they first came to the West, were absolutely horrified um, that how little kindness and how little friendliness was shown towards ourselves in Western contexts. Um, this, wasn't, this was not necessarily taken as a big problem in Eastern contexts. Tibetan teachers, when they first came here, um, were horrified, as were many of the Thai monks, Burmese monks, and Sri Lankan monks when they first came. That this was considered in their cultures to be something you didn't spend a long time over because it was taken for granted that you actually had a friendly relationship with yourself. You held yourself in some respect, in some form of kindness. And so we have to spend quite a bit of time uh, developing metta towards ourselves, holding ourselves in some kind of kindly act, act, some kindly, kindly act of mind here. Metta is a distinctly, I would say, dharmic attitude. It's, it's really the foundation of the dharmic attitude, the way of being in this world. It's an attitude of heart and mind. Now, I use the word heart and mind as a translation for this word, which some of you will know, chitta. Often translated as mind, more often than not. In Thai, for example, the Thai word, when they translate it, is always translated as heart. Yeah. So they speak about heartfelt qualities. I mean, so many times in my own training, I used to have Tibetan teachers saying, trouble with Westerners is they're always thinking with this. I never think with this. <laughs> yeah. Showing that intimate connection between the two, that chitta actually means heart and mind. The tradition itself even talks about what's called chitta vimutti, the release or the liberation of heart-mind. I'll write it up in a little bit because I'll say a bit more about this. The tradition also talks about panya vimuti, you know, liberation through wisdom or the release through wisdom. And then promptly elevates panya vimuti, the release through wisdom, over cheto vimuti. However, the phrase that's being used in both cases is vimuti, liberation, release, in both cases. One can be released through heart-mind qualities or one can be released through the qualities of, well, I don't actually like the word wisdom, but qualities which are understanding and insight as well. And rather than see them as both legitimate pathways to awakening, the traditions in general tend to elevate panyavimuti over anything else. And so actually, Chetu Vimuti gets um, downgraded to only giving you release into very high Deva realms or Brahma realms here. Now, out of this confusing morass, I hope to kind of give you a little bit of a story about this all. But first of all, I want you just to take on board the fundamental nature of kindness, the fundamental nature of friendliness towards all things. This is the distinctly Buddhist Dhammic attitude. The actual concrete definition or the etymology of the word mitta or metta 
in Pali, and I love this word. The etymology means to grow fat. <laughs> it means to grow fat, to swell with friendliness. <laughs> you know, you can't keep your friendliness to yourself. <laughs> it's actually this expansive. You're expanding all the time into this attitude of mind, which is this fundamental friendliness towards all beings. It also has the connotation of spreading out as well. So we spread this sense of friendliness. And I'm sure we've all come across this. Somebody who has that kind of friendliness, when they walk in the room, it can change the atmosphere of a whole room. Somebody who has that gentleness and that kindness. I've seen this on many instances when I've been involved in in things with the Dalai Lama. Um, When he walks into a room, everything changes. Everything changes. There's a fundamental attitude of friendliness. We invited him to Oxford about um, two years ago, and and he was giving a talk in the Sheldonian Institute. I don't know if many of you know, but this is a beautiful Christopher Wren building in Oxford. But before that, we had a meeting with him, a private meeting, uh, in the Theological College in Oxford, which is a beautiful medieval building. And they'd set it up for him. They'd put his little throne there and a place for his translator and everything. Dalai Lama walks in, completely ignored where he was supposed to sit, went down to the end of the hall and started pulling out benches from the end of the hall, pulled them out himself, and then sat there and went... (laughs) (laughs) And this is the most funniest thing I've ever seen, because there was two professors um, uh, sat on either side of him, and he sat there talking, holding their hands the whole time. While they looked rather non nonplussed by this. <laughs> this is not the sort of thing that happens to Oxford professors, by the way. <laughs> now, for me, that is a demonstration of this kind of friendliness, the friendliness that breaks through, the friendliness that breaks down barriers and actually connects with people. I find often that there is a virtue main of the opposite in the Western world. Now, I don't know, obviously I'm not so familiar with some of the idioms that you have in America, but in Britain, we often make a virtue out of being hard on ourselves and hard on others. And there's this phrase I've often heard, look, I'm only being as hard on you as I would be on myself. (laughs) Which is, means I'm going to beat you up because I beat me up <laughs> all the time. You know, and I don't know if you have anything an equivalent, but this is a very typical phrase that you often hear. So in other words, I'm going to lacerate you because I lacerate myself all the time. So there's no self-respect there, there is no gentleness, there's no kindness towards ourselves, and therefore I project that onto the world. Another thing to say about metta is it's a way of seeing the world. Yeah. This is a fu- if you like, if you, and I'm using this metaphorically, it's an eye that sees the world. Yeah. It's an epistemology. It's the way that we understand, the way that we see. If we see things through the eye of kindness and we see things through the eye of friendliness, we see a different world than the one that is seen through aversion, through infatuation, through confusion, and all of the fundamental 
elements of our rather kind of what I call unwholesome psychology. So we see, in a way, obviously the same world, but we see it completely differently. And this is what the Buddha is saying about developing this quality of metta. Another instance of this is that when we are engaged in practice, I personally feel that there is no such thing as pure vipassana practice. There is no such thing as pure samatha practice. There is no such thing as pure metta practice. What we have is actually a genuine practice which should include all of those elements. So actually in vipassana practice, if there is no metta there, it becomes very cold, it becomes very brutal. It's not a matter, as Rilke, the great Austrian poet, once said, it's not a matter of being able to see things. It, you have to learn to love what you see, or in our case, to learn to become friendly towards what you see. Now, often when we're engaged in meditation practice, we're asked to confront some of the most difficult dimensions of our own experience, some of the most hidden, some of the most deepest, some of, some of the most traumatic things, which are there, which can be quite traumatizing, can be very, very difficult. But if we can learn to hold those in the, in the eye of friendliness, in the eye of compassion, which grows out of this friendliness, then we transform our relationship with what we see there. Now, I particular, in particular, when I'm teaching Vipassana retreats, I emphasize always the quality of friendliness that we bring to this dimension of beginning to see what we encounter. Yeah. If not, we end up lacerating ourselves, creating bigger wounds in our own minds. Now, it doesn't work for everybody, but the phrase that I use and I, some of my Sri Lankan teachers used to use was that we must learn to befriend what we see. Yeah. To learn, in a way, to move just beyond that simple acknowledgement into a friendlier relation. And this is because of a fundamental aspect of meditation practice that we learn to comprehend, that thoughts are not our enemies. Why do we want to make thoughts our enemies? You know, as I was joking with the group the other day, thoughts should come with a label, just passing through. <laughs> They're just moving through. Yet, we treat them as our enemies. We come into a relationship of averse, aversive relationship with them. If we come into an aversive relationship, we often repress you know, or suppress what is seen, what is comprehended. And if we repress and suppress, then we end up feeding what is there. You know? and that we literally make it grow bigger. And as we all know, we can't keep a good repression down. <laughs> it will come out in some point. You know, so better to acknowledge, better to befriend what is there rather than to suppress what we see. 
Another aspect of metta is, of course, that it is a, a bhavana. Now, I don't know if you're all familiar with this word, but this is the word that I'm very keen to point out is the word that's usually translated as meditation, and I absolutely loathe the word meditation, even though I use it. <laughs> because it doesn't really convey what we're engaged in. The word bhavana, which gets translated as meditation, which actually is much more related to Latin and Greek, um, the word bhavana means to cultivate. We're engaged in cultivation. The Buddha came from an agrarian society. So many of the metaphors he uses and draws upon are actually agrarian metaphors. He was talking to ordinary people most of the time. Sometimes he spoke to the higher echelons of Indian society of his time, but most of the time he was travelling around speaking to ordinary people. So he would speak in a language which they could understand, using images and metaphors drawn from their ways of life, and particularly agricultural life. And so when he was talking to ordinary people about what we call meditation, he was talking about cultivating. The word bhavana actually comes from a Pali Sanskrit root, bu, which actually means to grow, to actualize, to bring into being something. Meditation can, I'm sure it doesn't for most of you, but meditation can seem distanced from the object that we're engaging in. So, for example, metta, if we meditate on it, might be a nice idea. It Wouldn't it be nice to be a little bit more friendly? And I'll think about that. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I don't know what it's, again what it's like here, but often uh, when the, when we use the term meditation in in Britain, people say, "I'll go away and meditate on it," and generally what it means, I'll go away and do absolutely nothing about it whatsoever. <laughs> um, in this particular instance, we're talking about something again, much much more proactive, and this is really what I'm trying to get through to you: is this is we're engaged in cultivating the soil. We are really preparing the soil for these other fundamental qualities to develop in. If we don't have the quality of metta, then we don't have the possibility for the development of the other qualities of compassion, of gentle joy, of equanimity. These grow out of that soil. This is why the Buddha is saying that metta in itself is a path to liberation because it gives rise eventually to upeka, which can be seen as a synonym sometimes for nibbana. You know, for, an actual, you know, for an actual achievement of this poise and balance in this world, being able to see the joys and the sorrows of the world and not be thrown off balance. I have images in my own mind of a beautiful ballet dancer, somebody being able to hold their focus, hold the posture, no matter what is going on around them. Yeah. This is the kind of image, it's a modern image, but I think one that's intended by this idea of equanimity. But that, this does not come about unless there is some fundamental ground for it to arise from. And so we cultivate this ground. 
We prepare the soil. And this is what the Buddha is actively asking us to do, to engage in that cultivation, to engage in cultivating this emotion, and it is an emotion, of radiant, expansive friendliness towards all beings, including yourself. Not more than other beings, but equally. So there's an equalization of self and other in this. Again, an idea often very alien, I think, in Western contexts, where often we talk about compassion towards the other, often with very little compassion towards ourselves. Now, the Buddha is saying this is a path to awakening because it leads to these final fruitions, to these big fruitions of, as I say, equanimity. The Cheto Vimutti that he's talking about is a liberation of that heart and mind which moves into that way of being. And metta is a way of being. Now, I'm going to just go and return to the history for a second because I think this will make something clear to you that probably isn't very clear. We have this odd phrase for these practices with obviously the foundation being metta. Brahma Viharas. It has all sorts of peculiar translations in English of the Pali terms. Brahma is, well, in the Buddhist time would be considered to be the chief of the Hindu gods or the chief of the Brahmanical gods. A vihara is simply a dwelling place, yet we come up with um, expressions like divine abidings. <laughs> Not quite sure what it means, actually, sometimes. Um, sublime abodes. Yeah. Now, part of the reason for this is because the word vihara means a dwelling place. Yeah. Literally, and this would be a literal translation of the Pali here, Brahma Vihara means dwelling with Brahma. It literally means dwelling with Brahma. In the Buddha's time, if you actually said to somebody who was within the Brahmanical, which later became the Hindu traditions, if you said to them, you were going to dwell with Brahma, this would be a synonym for you would be liberated. So actually, even within the title of these practices is the very key to the idea that these are liberative practices. Again, the context by the time of Buddha Gosa in the 5th century is being completely lost. The understanding of what um, the Buddha is meaning by calling these practices Brahma Vihara. So Buddha Gosa, um, instead of understanding it in this way, as a metaphor for liberation, actually sees it more literally. Actually, if you are going to be practicing these four practices, including metta, then you will end up dwelling with the highest of the deva gods, the Brahma devas. Uh, This is where you will be reborn. Rather than seeing it as a synonym for total liberation. So he's kind of missed the metaphor out here. 
He takes it literally in this sense. Now, he's, in taking it literally, he's taking it obviously within the way Buddhist cosmology sees it, you know, sees the universe, um, which has demoted the gods by that time and placed them very much within samsara. So the practice of um, the Brahmaviharas actually only leads to a better type of samsara. That's all. <laughs> I mean, it's, this is really what it's about. That it just leads to a better type of dwelling in samsara. And you know, that actually, even if we reach these realms and we practice metta, karuna, mudita, upeka, then ultimately we're going to be reborn in one of the lower realms because once you get to the top, the only way is down <laughs> within samsara. Yeah. And so he then accords this notion of real liberation to panya vimuti. That we can only be liberated through penetrating wisdom, penetrating understanding, or deep insight. These are all possible translations of the word panya. Yeah. A deep way of knowing things. Whereas the Brahmaviharas are relegated to this idea of chetovimuti, <clears throat> these words I mentioned earlier on. This now becomes secondary on his understanding. And we now have practices which are subsidiary to the wisdom practices within the traditions. However, it's very, very clear that in the early texts, when the Buddha speaks of Panyavimuti, when he speaks of Chetavimuti, he is using these as synonymous terms. They both, as I said earlier on, just to reiterate myself, they both indicate liberation. Yeah. And not a kind of lesser liberation to that. Yeah. This is the typical thinking that we often get within traditions, which is hierarchical, which places one thing above the other. And surprise, surprise, well, Cheto Vimuti is something perhaps lay people might aspire to. But Panya Vimuti is really the providence of the Bhikkhu Sangha, of the monks and the nuns, but primarily the monks by this time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, nobody else can really, really aspire to that here. No, so I think what we get is a much more egalitarian picture that the Buddha is presenting to us, one where it's possible for everybody because there are now different pathways being offered for liberation. Yeah. Different pathways. So samatha practices would also be concluded by Buddha Gosa in Chetovimuti. They wouldn't lead to ultimate liberation, but they would lead to simple liberation of heart and mind. So with this hierarchization, there is only one type of practice. And I don't mean this in the sense of the modern way that we use this practice, but there is only Vipassana. There is only the practice of Vipassana, which can lead to liberation. And that is this sevenfold kind of um, seven-stage aspect of Vipassana, 
which is laid out strictly in the Visuddhimagga here. Now, for the Buddha, on the other hand, when we develop this word, which I'm sure we're all familiar with now, it seems to be popping up all over the place, sati, this is the sati center. Yeah. Uh, sati, translated usually as mindfulness. Yeah. Mindfulness or present moment awareness is probably another good translation of this. Present moment awareness. Now, present moment awareness or sati or mindfulness, let's just stick to this, or the right mindfulness that we find within the Eightfold Path. Right mindfulness for the Buddha is boundless friendliness. Boundless friendliness is right mindfulness. Right mindfulness, as it's often portrayed, is a kind of looking at something in simple awareness. And all too often, mindfulness is reduced to being some kind of just simple awareness. And usually with the correlate, well, if I simply am aware and watch, well, everything's going to be okay. And this is the idea that actually it isn't. Not everything is changed by just looking at it. Sometimes you have to do things. And another aspect of mindfulness that's detailed out in the Kaya's got together particularly in the Abhidharma tradition uh, and, and looked at much more detail, is actually deliberately forming concepts which are wholesome concepts. Mindfully forming wholesome concepts. Here is a mindfulness, uh, here is a conceptual mindfully formed concept, metta. Because it doesn't assume you automatically have it. Yeah. We incline our minds in a particular way. And as the Madhupadnika Sutta, which is this Honeyball Sutta, which as some of you might know, the Buddha says in the Honeyball Sutta, the way that you incline your mind will become the shape of your life. Incline your mind towards greed, aversion and delusion, and that becomes the shape of your life. Incline your mind towards metta, karuna, mudita, and upekka, that will become the shape of your life. So we shape our lives by the way that we use our minds, by the way that we form uh, our ways of seeing the world. So, right mindfulness becomes boundless friendliness. Boundless friendliness is right mindfulness, and this is the way that we incline our mind in this particular way. And we do it as much as we can. I almost consider this a behavioral gesture with the mind. This is what we're doing. It doesn't always come naturally, does it? In fact, when I teach, when I personally teach, and we have a long retreat at Guy House in England, um, which is our kind of Vipassana center, when I teach the uh, Metta retreat, which we do every year usually, which is usually three week to a month retreat, people find this practice much, much more difficult. Much, much more difficult than sitting and watching the breath. Or just watching what is arising here. Because it is actually very active. You have to be actively engaged in what you're doing. Now, I'll speak about the practicalities of this, perhaps in the second 
portion of this, how we're actually involved in this, what takes it out of the business of being a purely concentration technique into why it becomes a technique, which, well, I don't even like the word technique, but I'll use it for, in a shorthand way, why we use it in this particular way for the development of insight as well, how we'd use that. Now, for the Buddha, maintaining oneself in right mindfulness is the same as suffusing the world with universal friendliness. That's why the injunction is to be mindful in every activity. Every activity of your life, in sitting, standing, walking and lying, what you're doing. And it's not a dispassionately cold, as the French philosopher Foucault calls it, cadaverizing eye. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we don't... He says often what we do is we look at things in such a way that we cadaverize life and then we look for its frail nerve. (laughs) So I think it's a very powerful expression. So we suffuse the world with universal friendliness, including ourselves. A person who has right mindfulness is also a compassionate being. And I'll say more about that. So if we have right mindfulness, out of it, in some senses, naturally grows from the seed that we plant, compassion. We become more aware, and as I say, I'll, I'll say more about that. We become more aware of the pain, the confusion, the anxieties, the, the travails of the world that are there. If we don't have that, if we don't have the friendliness, and we simply see that without the friendliness, it can be overwhelming. I find so many people in the Western world, particularly in caring professions, end up with compassion deficit. there's nothing left in the compassion bank balance at all because they've never worked on developing the resources in order to maintain that. And the resource to maintain that is the friendliness that we take towards ourselves and others. It's also a disillusion between thinking and feeling. Yeah? All too often there's that, again, dichotomy in the way that we approach things, that we think, there, you know, we think about life and then we supposedly emote about it. You know, this is the bringing together of this. Now, I find this actually something that, which is in within most Buddhism but not actually brought to the forefront, of bringing our emotional lives in line with, if you like, our cognitive lives. of really beginning to feel. When we actually hear the teachings, there is also an emotive element to it. I always remember one text, I was sitting in India once, I was reading a text, which was absolutely turgid. (laughs) Um, It was a Tibetan text, and it was pages and pages and pages of long philosophical argument. And each Tibetan text, at the end of it, has what's called a colophon, where the author says something and says where it's written and everything. But at the end of it, this text, it said, um, if you have read this text 
and the hairs on the back of your neck have not stood up, you have not understood it. <laughs> Needless to say, I hadn't understood it. <laughs> because it's trying to make this bridge this gap between thinking and feeling. I could follow the arguments, but it hadn't touched me. And I would also say that about most of the teachings. How much does the teaching touch you? How much does it contact your emotional life? How much does that, you know, just take just one example. How, does, how much does the teaching on impermanence really touch the very heart of your life? So much so that you can feel it. Yeah. This transience, this flow of events that we're caught up in, our own minds and the external events that we're caught up in, how much when we begin to understand that do we really experience something emotional about it? You know, I'm not saying you know, to get caught up in gales of emotion or waves of emotion, but just to be touched by almost the pathos of life sometimes. So, as I indicated earlier on, instead of trying to feel with the head, which is often what we try to do, we think with the heart. Yeah. This is what we, which, what, which is what we're trying to do with metta. Metta is not, I would say, a lofty sentiment. It's not sentimentality. Yeah. Oscar Wilde once said, I don't know if anybody knows Oscar Wilde, but he once said in his um, letter De Profundis, he said the sentimentalist was the person who wanted the luxury of an emotion without any hard work. <laughs> which I think is actually really often a lot of what we drop into, which is why I find the phrase loving-kindness rather sentimental. Yeah. Friendliness is something we can really work at, really try to enter into and develop to grow, to cultivate, to engage in this, I've wiped it off the board now, but to engage in this bhavana, which really starts to enter our life as something we're cultivating and growing. We sow the seed and we keep on cultivating and keep on growing it. So metta is active friendliness. It's shown in your acts as well in your day-to-day -day experience of the world. As I think I was saying to the group yesterday, you know, when we see the, it, you know, the litmus test of, of any of these virtues, and particularly of metta and karuna, is how, how well can you deal with the person who really winds you up? <laughs> the person who really irritates you? The person who you normally just want to flee away from? Can you listen to them in a more friendly fashion? Albeit only for a few seconds or so. <laughs> Let's not put the bar too high. <laughs> this is a graduated path. <laughs> but this is actually really the litmus test behind it. And uh, joking aside, it's those small momentary ability just to change the frame for a second where we see this person and we can perhaps respond to them in a slightly different way that actually indicates whether we have that friendliness or whether it's still absent within us. Whether there is any kind of warmth in the heart despite the irritation. Yeah. 
where there is anything still there. It's also to be pointed out, and this is the reason why I don't like the word love in loving kindness here, that meta is not romantic love at all. You know, let's get away from that. It's not, it's not romantic love, and it's not even what I call Christian agape, this kind of disinterested love. Meta is a feeling of boundless friendliness that arises when the consciousness of self and other is superseded. You know, when that distinction, that splitting between self and other starts to be eroded. Yeah. And we then, of course, are starting to move then into a more compassionate relationship because actually, as you will hear me say, this compassionate relationship is the ability to begin to see the other. Yeah. That's the start of the compassionate relationship. It's also, Metta, the direct knowledge of the stream of life, the flow of life, you know, being able to hold that in a friendlier gaze and a friendlier, a friendlier vision, really. And that, of course, flow of life is a ceaseless ebb and flow of things, coming and going, coming and going. This is what life is like. As I quoted to the group the other day, the poet Rilke once says, you know, we're in this world forever taking leave. You know, we stand here as like bowls, he says, bowls of hot liquid evaporating. Yeah. It's a lovely image. This is how we are, just like steam coming off hot liquid. Yeah. So, when we begin to contact this ceaseless ebb and flow, we see a moving pattern. This, for those who are here, in the last couple of days, you'll see this, particularly in this moving pattern of interdependencies that we're caught up in. Now, when the Buddha uses a term for contacting this flow of interdependencies, this ceaseless ebb and flow that we're caught up in, he does not actually primarily, and I don't know if anybody has pointed this out to you, he doesn't primarily use the word compassion or the word karuna. He uses this word, anukampa. Has anybody come across this word, anukampa? When you look through the Pali Canon, wherever the Buddha is referring to compassion, very rarely do you find the word karuna. You find this word, anukampa. And the word anukampa, um, and there's a Sanskrit version of this, which is anukrosha, um, has an etymological meaning, which has two, actually. One, which I think is more powerful, and one slightly less powerful. Anukampa means to tremble along with. To tremble along with. And I think even more powerful um, is another kind of literal uh, etymology of it, which means to cry out at the crying out of another. Yeah. To cry out at the crying out of another. Yeah. So we see somebody's pain and it affects us so much as if we have ex are experiencing the pain as well. Yeah. You know, it's that complete empathy for the other 
That only takes place when this self and other starts to break down as this sort of heavy dichotomy that we usually live. When selfing no longer takes foreground. Now, in our ordinary relationships, selfing more often than not takes the foreground. It's self before other. Or, if you're caught up in the kind of waves of what I call um, generating compassion deficit, it's other before self. What you're getting in this is balance. This is the middle way, is the balance, again, between the two. Now this only grows, as I keep on saying, and if nothing comes out of this for you and you take away anything... Hopefully this is the one thing that I would like you to take away, is nothing of this sort grows unless there is metta there. It only comes out of that field, that soil of friendliness, gentleness, kindliness. And if that isn't present, then even the compassion can take a hard edge. Too hard an edge. Uh, in other words, this is kind of what I just almost refer to as I will go out and do compassion on you. <laughs> yeah. You're going to be my object of compassion whether you like it or not. <laughs> yeah. you know, so this is softening that whole process. This is beginning to soften that process and to open us up to the other. Now I just want to say something about that because in our normal experience of things there is usually not what I call real relationship because there is dominating what is dominating in our interpersonal activities is often me. Have you ever noticed that? (laughs) I came across a cartoon quite a number of years ago which I've often cited but I think it, it it was so good. It was a couple who were Leaning across, well, it was a couple on the, at a dinner table, and he was leaning across the table talking to the woman across the other side of the table. And it had about 10 squares, you know, cartoon squares. And above each of the, in each of the squares, in the bubble above his head, went me. 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 And it went on and on like this. Until obviously he'd finished what he was saying, he kind of leans back in the chair, and she leans across the table, and above the bubble in her head comes me. (laughs) And he goes, (laughs) (laughs) Now, (laughs) do I need to say any more? (laughs) You know, this says a lot about human relationship. Um... I mean, I don't know if you know anything about the uh, British playwright Harold Pinter. Harold Pinter's plays are all about people not talking to each other. You know, there's lots and lots of dialogue, but none of it actually comes together. (laughs) And that is because of, in a sense, the egotistical relationship that's there, or egotism without relationship. Because egotism does not create relationship, it breaks it down. There is no seeing of the other. Now, if we take the other word for compassion... Could you just say the literal meaning of that word once 
I'll say both are literal meanings. I think it's really important. Literal meaning of the word anukampa is to tremble along with or to cry out at the crying out of another. So it's a very powerful sense. Now, when we come to the other word, which is used less frequently, but it's there in the Brahmaviharas, is this word, karuna. The word karuna, again, I don't know how much you know about the languages of, of early Buddhism, but the word karuna comes from a root which has two meanings, and this is the root which is pronounced kri. And this root actually means to do something, it's like the word kriya, which means to do something, to be engaged in an activity. But it also means to, this is the literal sense of it, to turn outwards. The doing here is the turning outwards. So real compassion is to turn outwards. To turn outwards from your own self-obsessions. It's interesting even in the mythology of the Buddha. And, most, and I do emphasize that the so-called life story of the Buddha is a mythology. You know, it's written 500 years after his death. You know, so it, even very familiar, hallowed ground such as his name is added 500 years after his death. You know, the word Siddhartha or Siddhartha actually isn't used in the text whatsoever. Even the word Buddha is not used in the Pali texts. The only word that's used generally is Bhagavan, which means it was a simple uh, term of respect, which was Lord, or Tathagata, which is what the Buddha uses about himself. But in the mythology, um, the story is basically that, um, of course, the Buddha finds it... Well, he gains his awakening and he finds it problematic as whether he's going to teach or not. Yeah. Yeah, he says, you know, this is difficult to comprehend and I wonder if many others could comprehend it. It's certainly going to be difficult for me to explain and to teach this. And then comes along a figure called Brahma Sahampati. Yeah. Brahma Sahampati comes along and says, please teach for the benefit of others. And the Buddha literally turns outwards, turns his gaze, and sees others. What he sees is suffering. What he sees is dukkha, actually, not suffering. What he sees is the pervasiveness of dukkha. And it's that, in that moment, that he becomes a samyaksambuddhasa. He becomes a fully awakened one. Yeah, in that moment of turning about. Now, I think this is a lovely metaphor for, you know, in some senses, the generation of compassion. Compassion isn't some gooey feeling inside of us. You know, it's connected to seeing the pain of others, you know, supported by the ground of friendliness that we can learn out of that ground of friendliness to begin to turn our gaze into the open expanse of the world and see the depth and the breadth of dukkha that's around. Now, without that, without that grounding, as I've suggested, then it is overwhelming you know, to do that. 
But the real sense of compassion is that movement into the world. That engagement with the world, that doing something with it. So it's not just some kind of nice, warm feeling that we have. It's actually an activity. This is why it's also clear as well, or Cree in Pali. So it should generate activity, generate the desire, the wish to help others in whatever way that that is possible. Now, I said a lot. I really feel I ought to pause here. I have to press my pause button (laughs) because I can't just go on. And see kind of what issues are arising people out of what I've said so far. Because I want to kind of then move on. John, uh, since I have the mic, I would would like to... uh, (laughs) (laughs) I'd like to ask you to comment on the... uh, It's almost a practice or an appeal. You hear it a lot. Uh, The phrase is, please send metta. Mm. I wonder if you could comment on that. Well, in a literal aspect of it, you can't send metta. In the literal sense of the word. Um, All you can do is incline your mind towards the metta. Hold people in good thought. You can't actually send the metta. Yeah, kind of putting a, I don't know, an envelope with a postage stamp on it and putting meta inside and sending it to them. You can't do that. You know, all you can do is incline your mind towards the good, you know, out of goodwill towards that person, to wish them well. This is actually what it's about. Because obviously, as you know, that the uh, within Buddhist practice and thought, there is no one in a sense who's going to be the messenger for it. There's no God, there's no Hermes, there's no deliverer of the message in this way. But in a sense, in in inclining the mind towards metta, and if there's a number of people inclining the mind towards metta, hopefully things are generated in a much more positive way out of it. So I don't know if that answers your question, but you can't really send it. Sure. Hi, I was wondering if you could give us some practical uh, encouragement about in those moments when we find ourselves with our habitual tendencies and knee-jerk reactions, how do we be friendly in that moment when it's like, oh, here I go again, and there tends to be, for me at least, judgments and mm-hmm. you know, seeing the pattern. And You say we should be friendly befriend all of our thoughts. We should befriend our thoughts, yeah. I mean, it doesn't, as I said earlier on, that word doesn't work for everybody. You know, but I think most of you will understand what I mean by that. It's to come into an open acknowledgement of what is there without attraction or repulsion towards it. You know, so in other words, even, even if we don't actively befriend it in this way as I'm suggesting it, we do that, that we accept what is there. This is a kind of acceptance that this is how I am at this moment. You know, this is the snapshot of me at this moment. That's not the totality of you because at the next moment it will be different. And so we acknowledge and we go through a constant series of acknowledgements. Let's just take a very practical issue when we're doing ordinary basic practice, you know, fo- focusing on the breath 
and your mind drifts off and it goes off into your habitual tendencies, goes off into the stuff that you know, we constantly recycle. I always think of the mind as being the perfect organic recycling machine. <laughs> you, know, you know, it recycles every bit of garbage that goes through. You know, yeah. You know, so we end up looking at the same stuff occurring again and again and again. And every time it comes up, to acknowledge it, to accept it, to be with it, to... Oh, there's many different ways you can do this. You can label it, say, you know, hello, anxiety, hello, fear, whatever it might be. Um, but to hold it with gentleness. And I think that's really what it's about. Normally, there can be the kind of self-critic that comes in, uh, immediately jumping in, I'm a good Buddhist and I shouldn't be thinking this. I've been meditating for 20 years. <laughs> you know, why should I be thinking these horrible thoughts yet again? You know, and there's all that kind of self-critique stuff comes in. And it's really starting to move away from that by just saying, hello, you're here. Again. And it's really the cultivation of what I call the gentle attitude. All too often, and this is just my personal opinion about this, all too often I think meditation can get into being yet another harsh way of dealing with our minds. A very, very harsh, judgmental way of dealing with our minds. Whereas I think the, well, the instilling of a, of a basic practice of gentleness, the way that you treat your mind, for example, even when you're holding the breath, you hold it with gentleness. I usually describe this as allowing your mind to rest on the breath rather than focusing on the breath. You allow it to rest on the breath. So you allow it to rest on the movement, the coming and going of the breath. There's gentleness, but there's also a degree of firmness in doing that. But there's not force. And when the mind drifts away, there's no self-castigation. You know, this is what minds do, have you noticed? You know, this is what minds are always doing. As I said to the group yesterday, minds, you suddenly discover, have minds of their own. <laughs> you know, they are off doing their own thing. They're playing. <laughs> you want it to be with the breath, but they're off playing. Um, but you know, instead of castigating that, you hold it with gentleness and you gently acknowledge where it's gone, seeing where it is, seeing what, for example, the patterns that have arisen in the mind holding it there, perhaps befriending it, if you can use that word, certainly acknowledging it, and then gently bringing yourself back. You know, so it's, the whole process is one of kindness, not one of brutalizing the mind again. We're extremely good at doing that. Yeah, we're extremely good at doing that. And one of the things I think we have to take into account is our Western psychology, in the sense that I think most Westerners want to be perfect at things pretty quickly. You know, and meditation is no exception to that. You know, if I'm meditating on, I don't know, say, let's say calmness for a change. I want to be calm. When do I want calm? Now! <laughs> you know, it's not that, it's a process of cultivating calm. I want calm. I've paid my money, I've put in my time. You know, I want it now. And so there's this kind of quest for perfection all the time. And actually what 
the meditative process, I'm sure most of you have gathered this, actually reveals to us is our imperfections. Constantly. We're constantly having to deal with our imperfections. Now, in, in doing that, in, in having these imperfections revealed to us, we can either treat them harshly or we can treat them gently. You heard what I said earlier on, there's no point of making enemies out of your thoughts. They just come and go and they come and go and they come and go. You know, so better to befriend them. You know, better to come into a, a, a friendlier relationship with them, even if you don't use that word. Yeah. Sorry, it's a very long... Uh, I'm, I'm always good at this, making long answers out of short questions. <laughs> Do you feel it's useful to explore um, near and far enemies in this practice? Will you speak more about that? Yeah, it's very useful to explore near and far enemies. And particularly, I think the near enemies, probably more than the far enemies, because I think we know what the far enemies are, often are. You know, the opposite of friendliness is, you know, kind of aversion and aggression and all the rest of it. But, the, you know, the, the reason why I said, uh, talked about sentimentality, the near enemy of, of meta is a degree of sentimentality. You know, it looks very much like, and this is the whole purpose, you know, whole point of the near enemies, is the near enemies look like the very thing that you're supposed to be cultivating. You know? They actually look, it's even more explicit in the um, near enemy of Upeka, because the near enemy of Upeka is Upeka. Actually, in Pali, it's really interesting. They use the same word, because actually the Upeka that's been translated as the near enemy is indifference, you know, not equanimity. So when we get in a state of, of deadness and indifference, we could actually say to ourselves, oh, yes, I'm equanimous. You know, you're just deadened, but it looks very much like the, the thing that's being proffered as the goal of it. So it's always very well, it's always, I think it's very useful to look at the near enemies. And that near enemy of meta as being something sentimental. You know, I'm having this friendly, you know, sort of friendly, loving relationship with everybody. And I go gooey and starry-eyed. And all this sort of stuff, and it, it isn't like that. It's much, you know, it's it's um, much more pragmatic, the whole relationship of it. So, yeah, I mean, the quick, the sort of short answer to this one is yes, it's very important to look at it. Far enemies, I think, make themselves very clear, but I think near enemies are the ones to look at because they, they're they're basically sheep in wolves, clo- uh, you know, wolves in sheep's clothing. Yeah, yeah a lot of them. Just one more, and then we'll, I think we ought to take a break. Yeah. I, I have the microphone, so I guess I get to be <laughs> the next one. <laughs> um, I have a question. Um, speaking about kind of brutality in our minds, something that I've noticed that I used to be brutal towards myself is a verse that is in the Metta Sutta, and I was wondering if you could comment on mm. it. And it's the verse that refers to even as a mother protects with her life a child, her only child, so should one with a boundless heart. Mm send meta to others, essentially. So can you comment on that? Because that's kind of the feeling or the message that I've been getting is that, oh, I should feel the same as a mother would towards a child, towards others. Mm-hmm. Yes, I mean, the boundless friendliness. They said this is what it's about. Um, Mother, you know, for example, let's take, uh, I mean, the relationship is, uh, it's interesting in the actual original text, it's usually translated as a mother towards her only child. It's actually towards her only son. 
<laughs> Shows you the culture. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, this is the way it's been—it's been the way it's brought up into the modern translation. Uh, now, it's not always the mother is going to have automatic love towards her child, but she might look after it in its frailness and its in its um, nakedness and its you know vulnerability and everything else. And I think it's that that's really being um, put at the forefront of it, not that you have to love everybody. This is why I said it's not love. It's have this friendliness towards this being, this vulnerable being. And I think that is the displacement then onto others. Now, I don't know how it is with everybody within the room, obviously, but you know, when I began to look at this and, and started to critique, in a way, the translation of metta as loving kindness, love is a very difficult thing, you know, to feel love for everybody in this way. I know it's certainly lauded in some traditions, uh, you know, not Buddhist traditions, but love as being a fundamental dimension. Um, but I think in, in the Buddhist teaching, it's actually much more pragmatic in that, that friendliness is something we can do, whether it's the vulnerability of your child, even if you don't have a direct relationship with it, in the sense of automatically loving it, you still might protect and look after this vulnerable being. Equally so, we can do this with others. I might not necessarily, as I've said earlier on, like everybody, but I can certainly generate respect and friendliness towards everybody and, and actually begin to see their vulnerability through that. Yeah. Much of the malice, and perhaps this is just slightly in parenthesis, but much of the malice in the world isn't done out of maliciousness, out of genuine maliciousness. And that sounds like an oxymoron almost. But it is done out of woundedness. You know? And that's very difficult to see. I think that's really, really difficult for us to see, particularly if we're caught up in it. You know, somebody's really horrible to you. Um, it's very difficult often to see that actually what this person is doing to you is out of their own woundedness, not out of any direct sense of maliciousness. Meta, I think, helps you to do that. It helps you to see the vulnerability of the other, to hold them in a friendlier gaze. Yeah. And I wasn't joking in a way and saying that might only be a few seconds. And let's be practical about this, because you know, our conditioning is so strong it often kicks back in. But you know, even if it's only for a few seconds that you can hold somebody in a different gaze and perceive for momentariness that vulnerability then you can develop a feeling of friendliness towards them, perhaps build on that to do it. And I think that's really what's meant by that passage within it. So we, we build on this feeling. Yeah. And it's very interesting because, again, actually Buddha Gosa does use that m metaphor you know, of the, the mother with the child. You know. The first of all is the kind of friendliness towards the child. And the karuna is then friendliness towards the sick child, is the development of the feeling towards the sick child. You know, the child that's actually, you see, who's suffering. Yeah. Now, I don't think any of them, it's very interesting that actually in Buddhist texts, love is not at the forefront of this. Yeah, isn't it? I mean, I don't know if you any, any of you have ever sort of thought about this. You don't actually encounter the word love. What you encounter often, even in texts like the Dhammapada, is hatred is not overcome by hatred. 
it's overcome by non-hatred. Actually, is what the Pali says. <laughs> you know, it's often then translated as love. But actually, it says non-hatred. You know, it's kind of implying something, but I think it's doing it deliberately. It's partly the way we negate in, in Asian languages, and particularly in Pali and Sanskrit. But I think it's also trying to get us away from the sentimentality side of it. Yeah. So, that's my gloss. <laughs> Shall we take a 15-minute break? 12. Oh! <laughs> <laughs>